This week on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making Podcast, Rick Evans continues his series titled Storyline. We dive deeper into the narrative of the Israelite nation by learning more about the kings and the prophets and how reading backwards through the lens of Christ is important. We're going to do a recap of last week, kind of the flow of it, then we'll dive into this week, and as you can tell by the amount of papers you got, this week's got a lot more to it. Um, so we'll, we'll get, get through that. Um, it's exciting stuff. It's very important stuff because um, it's really going to help build the context that we see Jesus walk into. Um, matter of fact, next week we're going to do the beginning of the class. I mean, in two weeks, we're going to do, um, remember, we're off the next week for the fourth. Um, we're going to do um, the, the, the time in between the two testaments. We're going to do a brief discussion of that, which will also heavily draw from what we're going to study tonight and what we've been studying. And then it's going to, we're going to dive right into Jesus in two weeks as well, right after. So it's going to be very important. So this context of what's going on here, what happens to Israel, um, very important. Um, I do want to say this is all great head knowledge, and it's good to learn, but unless we're change it into heart knowledge. I mean, I'm glad we're all here, but let this impact your heart. Um, some of these stories we're talking about, you may find yourself in those stories. Like, I can relate to that character and what was going on then. Uh, we've talked about meditating on Scripture. You know, let this not just be head knowledge, and that's what this church has done from the start. Anson and Heather have tried to drive that home um, since they, they founded Emmaus. Don't let it just be head knowledge. Let it be heart. Let it transform your lives and transform um, how you impact others. Um, that's what it's about. So um, it's, there's a lot of information here, but I hope it doesn't come across just as information and facts. This is about a story that God is impacting the world. And as we've talked about, he's the main character. And again, some of our main themes are a loving, loving, holy creator king who restores, renews. Um, Last week we talked about, let me dive right into that. Um, We talked about Abraham. Abraham was coming, this this map is not to scale. Um, So let's say he's coming from this area, okay? God calls him, so Abraham comes to, to hear and he's promised the land. He's given that, that covenant we talked about. Um, so it has this, begins to see the family, God working in that family. We have Isaac and then we have Jacob, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And then um, we have the 12 tribes from there. The 12 tribes, remember the brothers are mad at Joseph. Joseph's kind of a showboat, wearing the coat, talking about his dreams, how bad he is. And um, the brothers, you know, really resent that. I know Joseph comes across as really a good guy. That can be interpreted. I don't know if there's a pride issue there or not. Um, Anson will be, I'm sure he did talk about Joseph. I don't recall in the Genesis series, so I recommend go back to that. Um, I, had a lo- I have a little bit of problem with Joseph, a little bit, but otherwise he was an outstanding person, especially when he got to Egypt. Remember, they sell him. He's taken to Egypt. Um, where he is falsely imprisoned um, for a crime he did not commit. Again, he was honorable in that, so no doubt he's one of the more honorable people we see in Scripture. 
Um, but he had a little bit of pride issue, I do believe. Um, but that's my interpretation. Um, then he um, has these dreams. He comes up to be very powerful in Pharaoh's court, um, possibly one of the most um, powerful people in the, in the whole nation of Egypt. Meanwhile, back in Israel, um, famine's on its way. So they're coming down, and there's a lot of traffic going on between the two, okay? Joseph predicts this, has a dream, has prophesied, hey, there's going to be a famine in, the, in this region. He starts storing stuff up. So a lot of people come down here in the, in the 11 tribes. Families are coming down, too, saying, hey, there's going to be food down here. And Joseph sees who they are, recognizes them, and reconciles. There's one of those, there's a little bit of a story there in there. The brother who was cast off, falsely mean by the brothers, is the one that does the restoring, reconciling. Um, again, there's that. When we look at the story of Jesus, we're look, we look back at that story and see what it teaches us about Jesus. That here's Joseph kind of living out that reconcile, falsely imprisoned, you know, tried to do the right things. Not perfect, but tried to do the right things. Um, he, he was, Jesus is just a better Joseph. He's the ultimate Joseph. Because um, he also is there to reconcile. God restores, renews, he reconciles. Those rewards we talk about. Um, so they come down and they, Joe say, hey, bring the family. Let's have a big cookout, big picnic. And they, they, they park themselves in the northern part of Egypt in Goshen, what's called Goshen. And there they are, welcome, as the famine comes in, and they're welcome. And we, we leave that part of the story. Meanwhile, 400 years later, we find out they've been turned into slaves, um, and the Egyptians are oppressing them. Moses shows up on the scene. Um, does a little bit of skedaddling back and forth, but finally he's told, hey, you got to get, get them out, get my people out, free them. So he does that. He crosses the Red Sea, wherever that may be, one of these places. Um, gets up here, gets them close, and in this area, he says, let's, you know, let's, we're, we're close within, we've gone through the laws that Travis talked about last week, done that whole thing. He says, now, send in some spies. Let's see what this land's really like. So they go in back to this land again that was promised and only two spies come back out, Caleb and Joshua, and say, hey, they say, those two say, hey, it's great. It's ours. The Lord's behind us. The other ones say, no, no, this is, this is bad news. These guys are huge. It's trouble. It's trouble. Of course, this whole time They've been whining and complaining, and, and I'm sure Anson and Travis and Brian will go more. We'll see a lot more of that as we go through Exodus. There's just a lot of whining going on. So God's kind of said, okay, I'm done. You guys are in the wilderness for 40 years for this generation to die out. So they wander around. 40 years, they come up to this end, cross the Jordan River, and um, Joshua takes over. Moses dies. Moses disobeyed at one point, so he can't go in, but he can see it. So he knows it's going to happen, and he was blessed to see it. Joshua takes over. He goes in, and they do the conquests of Canaan, um, those, those combat stories we hear about. Um, eventually, it, it, the land gets settled, although there still are remnants of the Canaanites in there. Um, eventually, Joshua dies. 
the land's somewhat at peace, and God is to be their king. God is to be their king. But it doesn't really work out because, again, as we've seen this whole track, and actually since the beginning of the story of Scripture, people rebel, they disobey God, they want to take things on themselves. So, um, God, other nations start invading. There's trouble that pops up throughout. And God raises up judges, to these leaders that are warriors, they're wise people, they're leaders that fight, and mainly in pockets. One thing is, I think we get the concept that they, they took the whole land and fought for the whole, it, it was generally, usually, just in various pockets they would see rise up. But we talked about Deborah, you see that, Gideon, Samson, these are the judges that rise up. But also we saw last week there was a story of a family that came in, um, Naomi and Ruth, and they meet Boaz. Um, it's a nice little story of what, in the midst of this chaos of the judges and the fighting and the, the trouble, this, this family is um, seeing what happens with redemption, bravery by Ruth, incredible story. Hey, well, don't miss that. It's not just about Boaz as the Redeemer, it's about the courage of Ruth, too. And uh, what a remarkable woman she was um, in her own right. So um, those two together. And of course, at the end of that story, uh, we learn um, of the family line that will come out to King David. So that's where we leave off. And this whole idea, remember, um, we saw from the beginning, God's been the king. We see it. You know, we see in Judges the whole idea, he is the king. It's a monarchy. He's the king. Um, he's teaching back in Exodus. He's teaching Pharaoh, you're not the king, I'm really the king. But there's just this constant disobedience. But one thing we know is God eventually, in the end, is going to be king. As Travis said last week, Jesus, God being king, is not plan B. This, it was always in the plan. Now, because of sin, because of rebellion, some different things get worked out, but the plan still is God to be king in the end and sit on his throne. Jesus is not plan B, but a lot of what has to take place before that is it has to be tweaked a little bit. So he uses Israel as a light to the nations and hey, you know, this, see what I'm all about. Look at Israel. They're the model. They're the model. Of course, they didn't live up to that, but that was the idea. Well, later we're going to see Jesus is going to fulfill that model. He is going to be Israel, um, that Israel was intended to be as they prepared for the king. And as, again, as Travis mentioned last week, a lot of those laws and ceremonies, they're foreshadowing what's coming. They're foreshadowing what's coming. Um, and we've already talked about a couple um, messianic prophecies about a Messiah's coming. And we'll talk about few more tonight. There's a lot of them. We just don't have time. I mean, these sheets I gave you, that's whittled down from, I can't tell you how many sheets of pages, because this is so rich with stuff and so much about the, you know, just Isaiah alone we could do two classes on. Um, and it's just so rich. So anyway, I hope that gets, everybody understands that's where we're at at this point. Because um, the, the, as Judges ended, um, separate from Ruth, but the big picture, judges ended. They said there's still war in the land, and the people wanted their own king. So that's where we're going to pick up. That's where we're going to pick up. Does anybody have any questions up to this point? Okay. 
So remember, we're in Act 3 of the five-part play. Act 1 was creation. Act 2 was the fall. Act 3 is Israel. We did part 1 of Israel last week. We're doing part 2 this week. So this is Act 3, Israel, part 2. Um, at, at Judges, as I said, they, they wanted to, God was supposed to be the king, but it's not going to work out that way. Um, the people are just too rebellious. And we read about Hannah, another remarkable woman. She wants a son. It talks about her pregnancy. And I don't want to be this a life lesson that, for everything, but one thing that happens a lot in Scripture are signs um, and types and signals. Anson mentioned a few weeks ago about yeast yeast and what it symbolized. Um, when you read about yeast comes in the story, you know, ears kind of perk up. Oh, there's that yeast. What, what is it trying to communicate here? Um, same thing we've talked about uh, water. When water shows up, we've already seen Noah in the water. Uh, we saw in creation, the water separated. Noah, they bought the water. Um, we saw it in, obviously, the crossing of the Red Sea is probably the most famous case, the splitting of the water. We saw when they crossed the Jordan to go into Israel. The, part, the water parted. That's one of those signals that's constantly, when you see that, water's involved, especially, you know, many times, I'm not saying every time, but it has, you know, your ears should perk up and say, oh. You know, we get to the New Testament, same thing. You know, Jesus comes out of the water. It's just there's one of those signals of something's going on here. Same thing with troubled pregnancies. Again, don't read this the wrong way, but God many times this uses this as kind of a signal something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. We saw it with Sarah. We saw it with Rebecca. We're seeing it with Hannah. And by the time we get to the New Testament and you read about Mary and she becomes pregnant or she was without child, it's one of those where the Jews would have thought, wait a minute, something may be coming around the corner here, something big. Um, so here we, here we have one of those cases. So Hannah wants a son. She prays to God, and she has Samuel. Samuel, to me, is one of the most interesting characters in Scripture. In eternity, he's going to be one of the first people I go to to meet, talk to. He is, I consider him Samuel Kenobi. He is like Obi-Wan. He even comes back as a ghost at one point. I mean, this is, he, he's, he's a judge, first of all. He is one of the transitional characters. He's a judge. He's the last of the judges. We read about him in 1 Samuel, but he's actually kind of the last of the judge period. Um, there's another transitional period we'll, uh, character we'll read about later, John the Baptist, and many see him as the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though we read about him in the New Testament. He's that kind of character. Well, Samuel's kind of that. He's a judge as we go into a new phase. Um, the Lord calls Samuel, and then we have this defining moment, and this is one of the most underestimated moments in the Old Testament. And that is, Israel asks for the king, says in 1 Samuel 8, such as all the other nations have. Now, generally that is interpreted as they are rejecting God and they want a human king. There may be some scholars, so I don't want to make this a blank, I want to be careful about this. Some scholars, I think, may say, well, that was part of God's plan and he had no problem with it. Because he kind of gives them some, okay, if you're going to do this, then da-da-da-da. Others say, eh, this, this 
really was somewhat of a rejection and he said okay I'm not gonna wipe you out for it but you know good luck to y'all you know this is what I would do um, but this is a, a huge moment because the judges and the prophet were kind of all combined offices so to speak they were combined roles but here um, Israel is you know Samuel feels he re he's rejected he's rejected and and God said, no, no, they're rejecting me more. And um, they want a human king? Well, you let them have one. So as the, the writer of this book puts out here, our main source says, um, thus Samuel becomes God's appointed kingmaker and whose prophetic role is clearly designed to provide a system of checks and balances. So here we go. The prophets now are going to become the checks and balance system to the kings. So, you know, we, can, we get that idea in the United States, you know, that idea of checks and balances. Here, the prophets are now going to be a separate branch, so to speak. The struggle between prophecy and kingship, between spiritual goals and political aims, characterized the subsequent history of Israel until the exile. There's this tension now between prophets and kings that's going to exist. It's not that they don't always get along. David and Samuel become very close. But there's still a little bit of tension. The prophets are speaking for God. Um, this, I appreciate this years, years ago when I heard a, a scholar or testament professor say, you know, we read about the kings and the stories are celebrated. He said, but pay attention to the prophets. They're the key. They're the ones speaking on God's behalf. They're the ones that are driving the story. So we're going to look at a lot of these characters. Um, God, however, the um, Bartholomew, the writer of the book, says, chooses a king. Thus, there's a theology of kingship. The moral king is firmly established as an underking of the great king, the Lord. When the Samuel the prophet anoints the king of Israel, that mortal king becomes the Lord's anointed one. So we have this idea, of course, it's just a foreshadowing of the perfect king that will later come. That will later come. So, um, part B, we get to these key kings, the first three who are very well known, even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you probably have heard at least one or two of these characters, okay? Samuel anoints Saul. Saul is chosen. He has that appearance, that worldly standard appearance of what a king should look like. He gets chosen, but shortly after, Samuel rebukes Paul, I mean Saul. I mean, he's not doing well. Saul disobeys. Saul's impatience and failure to follow God's instructions results in God's rejection of him as king. By 1 Samuel 15, God has already rejected Saul. Samuel goes, God says, I got another one that's going to take his place. Samuel goes out to the, the family of Jesse, again, back from Ruth and Boaz line, family of Jesse. He goes to the ones, and, and you know that story, if you're familiar with it, goes through all the brothers. And then Samuel says, hey, is there one more brother? And they said, yeah, like, you know, the little guy out there with the sheep. You know, again, Sheep, it's another one of those signs. Oh, he's taking care of the sheep. That's, that's interesting. Again, as we look, read backwards through the lens of Christ, the great shepherd, think, oh, that's, that's interesting. 
Samuel anoints Jess, uh, David, the son of Jesse, in 1 Samuel 16. Um, then we get to the stories of, of David still kind of on the back burner with his brothers. He's kind of getting a little bit recognized by Saul, but he goes up to the battle, of course, with David and the battle with Goliath. Israel's scared. The brothers are scared. You know, David says, you know, I'll, I'll handle this. Throws on the armor or tries to throw on the armor that Saul gives him. Doesn't really fit. David goes on down there, defeats Goliath. Huge story. This is a great story about reading backwards. Because often, and Anson alluded to this recently um, in light of Moses or David, sometimes we see David as the hero. We should be like David. Well, David's just not a perfect king, not a perfect leader. He's just foreshadowing the great king. It's foreshadowed. Tim Keller does a great job talking about this story, saying it's a foreshadow. He's, he's foreshadowing a better king. It's not that we should emulate David. It's like, oh, he's foreshadowing the king to come. That is so cool. Also, um, Louis Giglio down at Passion has done a great book on this, great series on this. He says, you know, we're fighting the battles against Goliath in our own lives. Jesus has already defeated, again, looking backwards, Jesus has defeated these things. Goliath, he, matter of fact, the book's called Goliath Has Fallen. That's Louis Giglio's book. Because he's saying... It's not about David. It's about what Jesus did to these things that we call Goliath. He's already defeated. We don't need to act like David battling these demons or struggles or sinful tendencies. Or Jesus has already declared victory. That's what the story's about. It's already won. We just need to take hold of that and live in that. So that's ideas of reading backwards into these, into these stories through the lens of Christ. Um, so eventually David, Saul and David, um, oh, excuse me, Saul and David have this tension, of course. Saul sees the success of David as David's coming up through the ranks, winning victories. Meanwhile, David's also becoming best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan is the prince. He is destined to become the king. And again, in an almost Christ-like way, he steps back and says, hey, I recognize what's going on here. One, David's my best friend. Two, I see what God's, God's hands on him. I'm, I'm going to, out of humility, I'm not going to try to push my way into the kingship. I'm stepping back. Saul, I mean, D Jonathan's in this weird tension between his dad and his best friend. He's trying to walk that narrow line carefully. It, what he really does is protect David um, out of obedience to God. It's a great story of friendship. Um, so um, Saul hates David. It's during this time we see a lot of the Psalms, and we'll talk about those briefly in a minute. Um, but eventually John, uh, Saul and Jonathan die in battle, um, and David becomes king. This is our first another overlap. We saw overlap last week of timeline, but here's this, a similar story is found in 2 Samuel and portions of 1 Chronicles, the story of David becoming king. Um, Chronicles and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, they overlap. They're telling many of the same stories with a slightly different twist. Um, Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles, are very much about the southern kingdom. We'll talk about that in a minute, about Judah. And in very positive light, um, 
many people think Chronicles was written late in the exile that we'll get to here at the end of the, at, of the evening, um, and as an idea of hope and what's what's coming and that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, I believe in the in the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible um, because that's how it was written. They feel last. So anyway. Um, Take a minute amongst yourselves, talk for a minute yourselves. Think of an Old Testament story or character where you may see through the lens of Christ how to read that backwards. Like, what is this foreshadowing? Like, what, has there ever been a story that you found that did that? Um, you know, how it impacted you? Or where you found yourself and thought, you know, because I'm a follower of Jesus, this story meant this to me. So take a few minutes and just talk to much of Does that make sense what I'm asking? Not to mention the King David story or Moses or how Jonathan emulated it or we talked about Ruth last week in that way in Boaz. So to, any stories like that you may have amongst yourselves, you know, it was cool. Maybe it's something that, you know, Anson or Travis or um, Brian talked about recently with Exodus. You know, I see that story and that impacted me because my faith in Christ, this story, you know, means more to me and I see it through the lens of Christ. So take a few minutes. All right. All right. Um, this is a good time to talk about also, this is where we have more overlaps of the books. This is where I'm going to, I threw in some of the Psalms here, the idea of the Psalms. Not all the Psalms are from David, but David did a chunk of them. So they're largely associated with him. Um, I mentioned Psalm 23 in here. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes, there's one of those re-words, refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. There's that relationship aspect. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, there's that loving aspect there. Of course, that's one of his more famous ones. Um, so many of these psalms are, are powerful. Psalm 110 is, I believe, the most quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Um, there are just so many that have these messianic um, aspects to them. Let me, Psalm 22. Um, this will sound familiar to many of you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far my cries of anguish. Then it goes on to say, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Obviously this is a messianic psalm. And then it goes on to say, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And it goes on to say, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will down, bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness. 
declaring a people yet declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Um, and many think when Jesus said that on the cross, my God, my God, why are you saying? It was partly that question, but it was partly also of, hey, everybody, all you Jews who know Scripture, think of this psalm. Think of the whole thing. Remember, they knew it. They knew it. And he's saying, consider the whole thing. And look at the end of it. You know, at the end of it is, you know, just powerful victory of what's going on there. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. Um, again, seeing those psalms in the light of Christ. Um, eventually, Saul and Jonathan die in battle. Uh, David is anointed king over Judah. Um, but this tension with Saul and his family will continue. Um, David um, later then becomes king over Israel too. There's a tension between now, we see, between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern area of Judah. This tension is growing during the Saul-David thing. It, it is developing. It's, it's going to really manifest itself here in a little bit. Um, David becomes king over Israel, takes control of Jerusalem, and the ark makes its way to Jerusalem. Um, in that, um, the ark getting to Jerusalem, that's very symbolic. The ark, of course, contained, um, if you don't know, if you've never seen Indiana Jones, Temple of oh, excuse me, uh, the Raiders Lost Ark. Um, tablets, the, t the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments, um, some manna, and um, Aaron's staff. Um, and so it was considered very symbolic of God with us. So it's going in, you, you know, there's stories about this that we won't have time to get into, but it's an important moment. So it's making it in Jerusalem, it's like coming home. It's coming home, very important. God then makes, um, because of David's faithfulness, um, his heart, um, his caring for the ark, make, you know, all this kind of thing, God makes a promise to David. Um, and we see that in Second Samuel and First Chronicles. Um, and it says, one, David's name will be great. Two, there will be rest from his enemies. Three, there will be a dynasty. And four, his son will build God's house. Um, this, of course, this idea of, we'll see, again, looking backwards, we see this dynasty. Jesus fulfills that dynasty. Um, as we'll, we'll see in the, in the genealogy, in the Gospels. Um, and, and the writer goes on to say, Israel now is fully, officially constituted as a kingdom. It will now fulfill its calling to be a light to the nations as a kingdom. Israel's human king will lead the peoples to be a holy nation as a kingdom. He will do, he will do so as he removes idolatry from the land and gives Israel rest and shalom. Um, at first, of course, David succeeds as king. He a, does a terrific job. Um, but then we, we hit the, the famous line, you know, is, while kings go out to war, David was hanging around the house. He's up on the roof, and he needed to be watching TV or something. Because it was no good. Um, so we have the um, incident of David and Bathsheba. Um, one of the most tragic parts of that is not just what happened with Bathsheba, but what they, what he did to Bathsheba's husband. Um, there's, you know, there's murder here. 
Um, and not to mention if coveting the wife, I mean, there's so many sins here. Um, I think sometimes people forget about the, the murder part. Um, and um, of a very honorable soldier, loyal soldier to David. Um, the Samuel has since passed, so Nathan is now the, the, the prophet to David, and um, Nathan rebukes David. There we have that accountability. You know, you, you messed up. Does it in a great way. If you've never read the story, really almost tricks David into confessing and realizing what he's done. I, I highly recommend the story. Second Samuel 12. Um, David um, has to deal with the consequences of, first of all, there's a lost a child dies, the baby dies. Then there's also this just very dysfunctional family, to say it mildly, and it's going to almost become a civil war between the fa- within the family. So David's got a little bit of tension going on with Saul's family. He's got tension with his own. The kingdom is in trouble. He's a little bit on the run. It's, it it kind of ends sadly for David. Uh, but he, he knows repentance, and he knows sorrow, and he still wants God to... to um, you need a sheet. Um, that's my son-in-law. That's why I spoke to him. <laughs> I love him. Um, um, eventually, David, in his old age, um, he's dying, and he makes Solomon king. Um, and he dies. Solomon becomes um, the leader. And Solomon asks God's, God, um, God for wisdom. And we see that in 1 Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Um, the wisdom literature, I'm going to stop here again, because Solomon's very related to the, the wisdom literature that we see Proverbs, um, um, Ecclesiastes. Um, Anson did a series on Ecclesiastes years ago. Um, I recommend you listen to that. That was a hard one to go through, but he did a great job with that. Um, and um, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, some think it was Solomon, don't, but we'll consider it wisdom literature, and I'm just mentioning that because that's also associated with him, but he may not have written it. Um, we'll let scholars debate that, and I don't think it really matters, you know, with the story. Um, but wisdom, as seen in the various wisdom books, is all about knowing how to live effectively, how to express God's glory in a good, though fallen world. Um, so Proverbs 3, and we'll see some of these themes that we've been looking at over. Um, Proverbs 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Great love, relationship um, theme there, a lot, a lot of wisdom. Solomon, of course, as promised to David, um, Solomon is the one that's going to build the temple for God. So um, he, he completes the temple. Solomon also goes out of his way to make his own palace, which is very 
interesting because he really goes all out on the palace too, um, which should be a little bit of a warning to what's going on with Solomon here. He's getting a little bit of a head. Um, so as the writer of our, of our resources, the Lord in Israel now at rest in the land. When the ark is de deposited in the temple, the exodus cloud fills the temple, showing that the glory of God is present in Jerusalem. God now has an address on earth among his people. Jerusalem, or Zion as it is known, fires the imagination of the prophets and leaders of Israel in the time of Solomon and after. Okay, that's a very important line as we get to the Gospels. Keep that in mind. That's a mindset that's not just at this moment. This is going to be through the rest of the Old Testament in between the Old and New Testament. This, this idea of Jerusalem or Zion's nose fires the imagination of the prophet leaders in, in the time of Solomon. Jerusalem is now the center for Israel's formal worship and Israelites will make regular pilgrimages to it. It must seem as though Eden itself had been recovered. That's powerful. Keep in mind, think, and we'll talk about this. Jesus is coming and says, I'm going to tear down the temple. Think about how you've had hundreds of years of this mindset. And Jesus has come and say, I'm going to take it down in three days. Think how the Jewish leaders thought of that. And we're going to talk about that in two weeks. Um, again, there's idolatry in the land. Solomon's starting to let a lot, lot slide. Um, a lot of it of his own doing. He's letting foreign women come in and really influence his theology and his actions. He's letting things go on in the land that David would not have tolerated. Um, Samuel would not have tolerated. Um, but so God is angered that the heart of the covenant has been violated. Solomon is warned that the kingdom will be divided and that his heirs will only rule one tribe. And at 1 Kings 11, Solomon dies. So then we get to um, the division of the, um, of the kingdoms here. Um, two people come out after Solomon. Rehoboam, who is Solomon's descendant, and Jeroboam, who is from Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, the northern king says, you know, this is our time. Rehoboam's not treating people well. He's kind of picked up Solomon's habits and raised it a notch, but heavy taxation and workload on the people. Uh, Jeroboam's kind of nasty in his own right, and they go to war. And this uh, results in the divided kingdom. Uh, we see that in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 10 through 11. Um, this begins the recording of the various kings of both Israel and Judah. The prophets call the two kingdoms to be faithful to God on his behalf, warn them of the consequences of turning away from him, warn other nations of their actions towards Israel and Judah, and yet the prophets also provide hope. Meanwhile, only a handful of the kings of Judah, um, excuse me, of Judah, were faithful to God in leading the country, and none of the kings, yeah, none of the kings, sorry for the typo there, none of the kings of Israel. Um, it's very important. There's this now sequence, if you've never seen it, it goes through Kings and for Second Kings, for Second, this back and forth. Chronicles mainly focuses on the southern kingdom, but 
the kings, especially, you're back and forth between this is going on in the southern kingdom, this is going on in the northern kingdom. This is going, you know, and these kings, some overlap, then another one takes over, that kind of thing. So it's just back and forth. Keep in mind, none in the northern kingdom are good. None of them. A handful in the southern kingdom are good. And it will say they did right, the right ways as their father David had did. Many times that's how it, and they were buried with, you know, their fathers, that kind of thing. And we'll talk about a couple of them, but that is a common theme. Most, most still were off the track here. Um, of course, um, we're going to talk about some of the prophets here too. Um, so the divided kingdom comes in. Um, we hear about people like Ahab and Jezebel. You've probably heard some of that story. During the 9th century BC, um, one way to look at, if you're looking at dates, these are rough dates. I'm going to put this over here in this land. Um, Moses, we're going to say he was somewhere 1500 to 1200 BC. Depends on who you read, and I'm not going to get into the arguments of which is right and that's another whole summer series. Um, David, let's just say, is around 1000 BC, just roughly. So that's where we're at. Okay? Now we're going to start going a little bit down the line here as we get going. In the 9th century, okay, Elijah arrives. We read about him in, um, we see this arrival in 1 Kings um, and 2 Kings. Um, he takes on Elijah's the one that takes on does the, the battle at Mark Carmel with the, the false prophets of Baal very famous story, never read that very cool story very cool story, but it also shows how the prophets can be faulty as well, I mean he flees right after it, he kind of chickens out tries to go into hiding um, you know God calls him out of the cave um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. Um, eventually, Elijah is taken up. We hear about the chariot coming and swooping him up. Elisha takes over. Um, then King um, Uzziah takes over. He begins his reign. He is considered, there's one of the better ones, Uzziah. I'm not going to name all the kings. That would just, I don't want, again, I don't want to throw facts and dates at you. You can read these. I'm just kind of throwing samples of them. Of some of the, you know, here's a good king. Um, during this time of King Uzziah and, and some of the kings before and after him, which is the ninth to mid eighth century, this is where we see the prophet Amos. So here's the chrono one of those chronology issues we've talked about. We see the prophets listed after these books, but that's not necessarily when the Amos, considered a minor prophet near the end of the Old Testament actually is taking place way up here in um, you know in the in the portion of chronicles in you know, early parts of chronicles and kings so keep that in mind these prophets that you read about later are actually overlapping with many of these kings we read about so that's important thing um, he's Amos is prophesying to both the northern and the surrounding kingdoms 
he's describing the Lord as a lion ready to pounce. Again, they're warning about this idolatry, this disobedience. Um, Amos 3.1, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of, up out of Egypt. There's that relationship, that love, I brought you all out. This family, what are y'all doing? Joel, again, another prophet during this time. He uses the image of locusts for judgment from God. The day of the Lord, and that the vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. However, Joel also gives a sense of hope. So Joel 2, um, 27-29, Then you will know that I am in Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And if you've heard that before, that is from Acts. That will be, we'll talk about that in three weeks. Um, that, that prophecy comes to comes to life. Likewise, we see Obadiah. He's, he's just taken on Edom. He's taken on a whole different country, said, hey, you've been bad to God's chosen people. You know, look out. You're in, you're in trouble. Um, we see the 8th century, the prophet Hosea speaking to the northern kingdom, declaring that Israel is like a wife who is a prostitute and how it treats the Lord. The relationship is broken, damaged, Yet the Lord will, Lord will, see, will seek to heal the relationship. Hosea is one of the, and there's others, but he's, he's a great example of living out the story. We talked a little bit about Ruth last week in this way. Hosea is definitely one. He is living out the Old Testament situation. Um, I'm sure that was incredibly painful for him, um, but he is kind of saying, see what's going on in the big picture? This is what's going on in, in your life. So, you know, talk about it so you can relate it to the people of how it feels, what, what this means to everybody. Um, so that's a cool way of certain characters and books actually are living out the big picture. Um, so Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's another messianic prophecy, by the way. This will be... A passage in the in the Gospels, as Jesus comes out of Egypt, that this passage will be referred to. We are also introduced to the prophet Jonah. I'm sure everybody's heard Jonah, um, the reluctant missionary. Again, a great example of a not the prophets are not perfect. He did his thing and was kind of a whiner. He too almost lived out the story of Israel. And here he is trying to run away. Then said, okay, I'll do it, and then does it, and then whines, you know, just like the Israelites did in the desert. I mean, it's just that kind of, like we do, we, we whine. You know, we, that's where we can find ourselves in these stories. You know, I, I whine sometimes. I complain about, you know, all you gave me was this little leaf over my head to shade the sun, you know, that kind of thing. And Joel's, um, I mean, Jonah's kind of living that out. Then we get to Isaiah. Um, considered one of the, they call them the major prophets, simply because the books were big. It's not because they're necessarily more important than the smaller book ones, but um, 
Isaiah is one of those. Um, he is, we mentioned King Uzziah. Here it says in Isaiah 1, Isaiah is the prophet during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. He is warning against the disobedience to Israel and its enemies, yet also providing hope. So Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. This, again, is referred to back in the Gospels. John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his disciples to Jesus. He says, how do we know you're the Messiah? How do we know you're the one? And Jesus quotes this. He says, tell him, because I've been anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, to, send, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Um, it's, a, it's a cool thing. And Isaiah has so many Let's see if I have some more here of um, so many messianic things um, Isaiah 7 it's not in your notes but here that, uh, then Isaiah said here now you house of David is it enough to, not enough to try the patience of humans will you not try the patience of my God also therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel which, of course, means God with us. Um, Isaiah 10. On that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but rely, will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people will be like sand in the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Um, Isaiah's got, I mean, again, we could have done several classes just on Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 49, he says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore, there's that reword, the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may, may reach the ends of the earth. Finally, Isaiah 52, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Good news, of course, means gospel, good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Um, just goes on and on. Just powerful stuff, powerful stuff. Um, finally, unfortunately, Israel, the northern kingdom, out of disobedience, even after all these warnings, um, they fall to Assyria in 722 um, and 721, that range, B.C., and they are carried off into exile. Um, as many of you may know, the Assyrians were brutal. Brutal. Um, they're the ones that first developed the idea of crucifixion. Uh, the Romans just kind of tweaked it and made it even worse. So um, that's 
it was that idea of Syria. That's why Jonah was kind of heading, hesitant to go to Nineveh. You know, kind of like, these guys aren't real nice. Can, can, you know, do I have to go? I'd rather, you know, go to Spain. Um, but eventually Israel, so meanwhile, in Judah, King Hezekiah reigned. He, now think about what's going on here. Assyria has come in. If you look at my great map. We'll say Judah's here, really. And Israel's here. Assyria has come in and taken the northern part. Now, as much as you may have been Judah and not cared for Israel and had tension and battles and they allied now and with each other now and then, but at least you had a common heritage, a common, but now you've lost, you're alone. You are alone. And you're stuck between Egypt was still a power and the powers that are brewing up here. And that had to be a little traumatic for him. So, but Hezekiah does not give in to the Assyrian um, army. So, um, God holds off Assyria from taking over Judah. And we read that in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. There's where you have three books overlapping on this event, this period. During this time, the prophet Micah is speaking against Samaria and Jerusalem. And, he, and um, one, of the great, one of the great parts, lines of scripture, I love this. Has he not shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. A lot of our themes in that, that one verse alone. Um, we are then introduced to the prophet Jeremiah, who also is warning Judah on behalf of God. It also gives hope. Um, and this is a passage that Travis referred to last week, and very important passage in the overall concept of, of Scripture. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Just a beautiful relationship. God coming to save the day. The king's going to come in. Just take over the situation. Eventually, though, um, Judah falls as well. Um, as the Babylonians this time, they didn't, also didn't heed. Let me just read something here. This is, um, as the Babylonians were approaching, they were knocking down city after city. And some of these cities that they were on hills would put lights up on the city to say, hey, we're okay, we're on watch here. We know they're coming. But this, this was found on an archaeological find on a piece of pottery. Um, one of the soldiers had written in what was going on um, during this. So um, he's, he's, he's giving a report of what he's seeing. And there's, there's, um, there's Jerusalem. Next to it, beyond it, is Lashish. Pronouncing that right. And then Ezekiel is beyond that. And Lachish and Ezekiel are about 20 kilometers apart. So um, this, this soldier or, or 
um, representative said, writes this, may Yahweh cause my Lord to hear reports of good news this very day. And now, according to all that my Lord sent, thus your servant has done. I've written upon the tablet, according to all you have sent me. And with respect to what my Lord sent concerning the matter of Beth Harapid, there is no man there. As for Semekeu, Shemeyeku has seized him and taken him up to the city. So this is Babylon and some of its allies are now in these cities. Your servant cannot send the witness there today. Rather, it is during the morning tour that he will come to you. Then it will be known that we are watching the fire signals of Lashish. He's right outside the city. He said, I can see the fires there. According to the code which my Lord gave us. For we cannot see the fires of Ezekiah. And they, to him he's singing, 20 kilometers away, that city has now fallen. The Babylonians are right there. Think how scary that would have been. And that's what Israel's dealing with. It's this warning of unfaithfulness. And, you know, that's, you just feel for the soldier. Like, here's a report, and we're all alone, and Israel's no more. It's just Judah, and the cities are falling one by one, and they're getting closer. And we had hope. We could see the light of, of that city, but it is no more. We don't see the light, so we know it's, it's fallen. That's scary. That is scary. Babylon um, did three exiles of Judah, kind of took three phases. Um, and we read about that in Second in Kings and some in Jeremiah too. It says, during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became the vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled, and the Lord sent Babylonian, Ramian, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. And that last line there is actually a little bit of hope. It's a little bit of this, the story's not over. They're not wiping out everybody. He, the, there's a representative of the monarchy that's been allowed to live. Um, so this exile part becomes very important. And it doesn't mean that they're in exile, they're going to start writing. We're going to see a lot of these books here in just a second. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk wrestles with God and what God is doing as Babylon is overshadowing the situation. See, the enemies puff up, he writes. The desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And he's, he does a lot of, oh God, oh God. Now this line here is a very famous line. Paul will recite it again in Romans. The righteous will live by faith. He will take this line and take it like that. This line becomes a huge influence on people like Martin Luther. He's doing a commentary. This line just, the, the Paul take on it just impacts him greatly. He writes his commentary. He's, his life's changed. Wow. John Wesley, reading Martin Luther's commentary on the Romans passage that's from Habakkuk, too, is like, oh, this passage just 
has hit me. So this is a very powerful line. Uh, I, I do recommend you kind of meditate on this, this passage. It's, it's, it's powerful. And it's about how we can't earn it. You know, we just, we're by faith. We, we can't earn our righteousness. It's God's righteousness. But while in exile in Babylon, the Israel captives deal with their new situation. So they've been hauled off. Israel went up here. Judah is getting taken over to Babylon um, and, and spread throughout. Um, this is when Daniel, he was probably taken 15 years before the pro- final exile. I remember I said it was three phases. He was probably taken in one of the earlier ones. Um, and we re- that's where we read about Daniel. So Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who made rule over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to, the pro- to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So they knew there was a time up. Also, what this passage is saying is, Babylon fall, fell. And this time it was the Persians who had come over. It's not, it doesn't look exactly like this, but you guys get the idea. Um, the Persians would come over and take over uh, Babylon. So now there's a new empire in charge. Um, of course, during that time in Daniel, we have the, you know, the story of the lion's den, the fiery furnace, um, all those great stories. Sorry, I had to recommend that. Um, also, during this time of exile, we have Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel considered the, the major prophets because of the, the length of the books. They're huge. Um, they'll take Anson five years to go through each book. So, um, but because they're so rich. I mean, there's so much there. It's, it's, it's great. Um, Ezekiel, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, Son of Buzi, by the keeper of the river, the Kaber River, in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Um, and, he, and he goes on to say in, in Ezekiel 34, For this is what the sovereign Lord says I myself was, will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. There's that sense of hope. Um, eventually, a remnant um, it returns to to Jerusalem. Um, and we see that in King Cyrus letting people go back. Um, some others um, allow, allows the, some of the Jews to start returning. Um, Haggai is a prophet during this period. Um, and he, he says in Haggai 2, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when, I came, when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, um, I will once more shake the heavens and earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all the nations will come. I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah is also a prophet in the post-exile as people are coming back. Um, he writes on to say, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in, the last day, in that day and will become my people. 
and I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Um, even later, we have Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the walls. Um, um, Artaxerxes sends him there. Um, and that's when um, Ezra also is coming back. Ezra and Nehemiah are overlapping. They're both sent back. Um, and you, matter of fact, Nehemiah, Nehemiah mentions Ezra in there. And, um, and they, they did the dedication of the wall, so it's, it's back. Um, Esther, the story of Esther takes place in exile, except she's still back um, in exile. She hasn't come back, but that story and that famous line, um, and who knows but what have, that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's a great line um, from Esther 4. Um, and finally, we get to uh, Malachi, or some call the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi 1-2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I will turn his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And then he goes on in, in um, Malachi 2. Do we all not have one father? Did not one God create us? There's that creation idea. Why do we profane the covenant of our, of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. Um, the Lord, the sanctuary of the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. They're there just declaring what has happened and are devastated. They look no, as the writer of our, our resource says, they look forward to having no king but God. All of a sudden you almost have this mindset changing of uh, these kings, things didn't really work out real well. We really want to submit to you. Um, will that last? Who knows? Um, Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will, will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then Bartholomew, the author of the book, says, The images together provide a vision for what God will do. The Messiah, the anointed one, will come. And Israel will be sovereignly converted. The hearts of the people turn to God at last. And he concludes, God will renew Israel and then draw all nations to himself as he promised them. In that process, the whole of creation is to be renewed. God's kingdom will be established over the whole earth. And then he says, with this, the Old Testament ends. Keep in mind, at this point, as the Old Testament ends, things aren't like what they used to be. A temple has been rebuilt or is starting to be rebuilt, but it's not like the old temple. Exiles have come back. Most didn't. I think I read maybe a third came back. The rest are still scattered. Um, some are being faithful to their faith and practicing distance. Others probably you know, drifted into other religions. Um, they're still dominated by opposing empires. So there's this hope of what's coming. What's coming? They are tired. They are a beaten people. They are a beaten nation. Um, the prophets at least recognize, you know, and keep proclaiming what has happened here. But, you know, it's still grim, but there's hope. 
as I've mentioned, many of these prophets were still offering hope. But that day, but that day, people will come. I will be with you. Let's not forget that. That day is coming. Um, and so that's how the Old Testament ends. Um, not on a good note, but on a note of hope. Um, and there's going to be this 400-year period before that hope really arrives. And during that time, certain mindsets are going to be hardened. And that's the world that Jesus and the apostles are going to step into um, with, with this backdrop of what we just read. This broken nation, this broken people who are staggering home, trying to recover this God who led them out of Egypt and faithfulness to him. But, you know, it's just not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen the way they expect it to. But there's hope. He has promised. He's been faithful. He's done so much up to this point, And that's what they're looking for. When we come back, first thing we're going to do is talk about why the Pharisees became the way they are and the Sadducees and the Zealots and how that developed and how Rome started coming into the picture. And then we'll see this little incident in Bethlehem and take it from there. So let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you that uh, you've given this this incredible story and you entered history and uh, just communicated in so many ways in poetry and wisdom literature and narrative and uh, to a variety of characters and uh, but you give us this idea of hope and looking back as Christians we can see that hope but sometimes we still don't appreciate that hope like we should and uh, we don't appreciate you like we should uh, but thank you for loving us and not giving up on us um, thank you for redeeming us and restoring us and let us live into that let us meditate on your word um, think about you in prayer and thought and just in silence and solitude and just just appreciate your awesomeness and your love um, it's it's beyond what we can comprehend but you through your word um, You've given us sufficient um, resources to, to appreciate you and for you to speak to us. Um, as we go out tonight, let's travel safely. Have a great rest of the week. Um, and thank you for loving us and thank you for this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.